the old pilot's playing tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 17. Whether it was the slight embarrassment of their RAF exchange pilot leaving them to take up a post in America flying F-15s instead, but shortly after my posting officer offered me that alternative job, the Australian Air Commodore, who ran the wing of Hornets based at Williamtown, had a chat with me. They would, it appeared, let me start training on the F-18 on their own recognizance, but only up to the weapons phases, when I would start to see the aircraft's more confidential capabilities. Hopefully by then, all the required permissions would have arrived. So, whilst Jilly started unpacking our many boxes, I got stuck into ground school. During the wait, I had the chance to meet the pilots on the last remaining Mirage Squadron on the base, 77th Squadron, the Grumpy Monkeys. This was the squadron I was to join after it converted to Hornets, and they were winding down their operations before the changeover. The Grumpy Monkeys had formed during the Second World War flying P-40 Kitty Hawks and saw action in the Pacific Theatre before deploying to Bofu, a former kamikaze base following the Japanese surrender. It was here that they adopted their image of a temple lion or shishi into their squadron badge, which was indeed rather ugly, hence their nickname. Post-war, they became the largest operational unit in the Australian Air Force, with 40 Mustangs plus a few Wiraways, C-47s and Austers. 77 Squadron fought again in the Korean War, converting to Meteor jet fighters during the conflict, and then had more operations, this time with Sabres in support of Commonwealth forces in the Malayan Emergency. It was in 1969 that the Royal Australian Air Force purchased the Dassault Mirage III and 18 years later I got the chance to fly in the back of Daphne, 77 Squadron's two-stick Mirage. I felt very much at home in it since the technology was much the same era as the Phantom. Indeed it handled in a similar way with a familiar buffet in hard turns. I enjoyed flying it very much, but a greater treat was coming my way. I was going to get my first Hornet experience. But before that, I needed a helmet. The Australians, in their inimitable manner, picked the best of what they saw on the market. In this way, they used British oxygen masks that I was familiar with, but attached to American helmets. Unlike the RAF torturers, who fitted our helmets, ratcheting the internal webbing so tight that it left ridges in your skull, the RAAF had a lightweight helmet shell that was filled with expanding foam. I became convinced that the fitting process was a practical joke as I hung onto a dummy helmet filled with hot foam for ten minutes to stop it rising up while it expanded onto the shape of my head. The result, though, was a very comfortable fit, particularly when combined with the soft cloth inner skull cap that helped soak up the sweat. When I first stepped into a Hornet cockpit, it was, of course, in the cool interior of the simulator room. The hours I had spent trying to learn the checklists were well and good, but nothing could prepare me for the excitement of actually resting my hands on the controls 
and watching the displays light up in front of me. The F-18's design was nearly a decade old when it arrived in Australia, but compared with the Phantom, it was like climbing into a spaceship. Two TV screens, digital display indicators, either side, a lower horizontal indicator and a wide head-up display dominated the front panel, in the centre of which was a multifunction upfront controller, a simple keyboard that took the place of the many radios, IFF boxes, nav beacons, ILS tuners and data entry pads that littered the cockpits of older aircraft. It gave the impression of a tidy office desk, with everything neatly laid out and ready to hand. After my first hour flying in the simulator, I was sold. This was going to be fun. Then came Friday the 13th of February 1987, an unlucky day, the origin of which stretches back to Norse times, when twelve gods of Valhalla got together for a feast. The tricky god Loki had not been invited but gatecrashed as the thirteenth guest and arranged for the murder of the son of Odin during the meal. In the Christian religion, the Last Supper took part with thirteen present, including Judas, whose betrayal led to the crucifixion of Jesus on a Friday. In reality, since more people take care on Friday the thirteenth, there is actually a lower number of accidents and misfortune on that than any other day. I was certainly taking care as I walked out for my first Hornet training trip with none other than the boss of Number 2 OCU, the Operational Training Unit, who seemed a little less than happy that some jumped-up POM was going to fly in one of his brand-new Hornets. I honestly don't remember much about that trip, but Jilly had to give me a good slapping that night to get the silly grin off my face. Trip number two was a solo check. Well, that came around quick. We cracked off and spent a very enjoyable time thrashing around the local low-flying area at 150 feet, but I was still somewhat entrenched in my old phantom landing technique, which included slamming into the runway so hard that my navigators usually wore gum shields. The wing commander, a slightly terse chap who called a spade a shovel, was far from impressed, so we repeated that trip so I could prove my ability to land in an appropriately delicate Air Force manner, and not like a Navy navvy. Job done, I got the chance to head off on my own, albeit in a two-seater with a neat cover over the back seat straps to keep them out of the way. With only the company of bitching Betty, the polite lady who reminded us of possible problems like imminent destruction, I parked the throttles into the top left corner, winding the two General Electric 404s into full afterburner. With my backside on fire and 32,000 pounds of thrust, pushing about 37,000 pounds of aircraft, the acceleration was impressive, and a quick hand was needed to get the gear up before the limit speed was reached. The Hornet was always keen to fly, and the flight control computers, the interface between my hands and the control surfaces, was seamless. Unlike a conventional aircraft, when I demanded a manoeuvre, I had no idea exactly what the flight controls would do to get me there. 
It could well be any combination of leading and trailing edge flaps, the ailerons, both rudders, and the big stabilators that could move individually or together. All I knew was that it worked in a way I'd never experienced before. After trying to pull the wings off for a while, I came back to demonstrate that I could land with finesse. Trip four was a close formation ride and my first in a single-seater, so that meant being glued to the wing of the lead aircraft for most of the flight, giving me little time to enjoy the freedom of throwing the aircraft around the bright blue Australian skies. By now I was getting a bit of a feel for the aeroplane. It was a delight to fly. The controls were precise and smooth and the engine response immediate, although I already realised that, like every aircraft, its performance wasn't limitless. It couldn't take off and then stand on its tail, accelerating into the sky like most people believed. That trick required you to hold it down, then accelerate the length of the runway to get some energy first, and even then a hard pull-up cost much of that speed and resulted in an early pushover, lest you run out completely. The Hornet was famously manoeuvrable, and it had wonderful nose authority that allowed you to point it anywhere in the sky, but pulling the wing into high angles of attack created enormous drag and loss of airspeed, it was quite possible to flat-plate the aircraft, that is, to pitch the nose up to 90 degrees with the momentum still carrying the body forwards, but recovering back to fighting speed took time, and in the meantime you were a grape, hanging around waiting to be plucked. Eight days after starting, I had completed a night trip and an instrument rating. The cockpit at night was truly wonderful, the display illumination clear and subtle and the lighting very well laid out. The navigation display was a little bit old school since it used a collimating lens to project a map image onto the back of the horizontal indicator display, over which was laid the electronic imagery of beacons, waypoints, routes and other symbols. However, Forget the mental gymnastics required to imagine a heading and distance to, say, a pair of intersecting radials. You just dialed up the beacons and projected the two lines onto the map in front of you. Instrument flying was a little different since the head-up display was the primary display of attitude, heading, altitude, speed, rate of climb and descent, etc. The head-down instruments were for emergency use only. A couple of more rides, including tactical formation and advanced general handling, and I came to a grinding halt. The Royal Australian Air Force had taught me all that they were willing to do for now, and until the US Navy came through with my authorization to proceed, I was grounded. I spent a couple of weeks sitting around watching my course mates on number one of 87 F-18 conversion course, coming back from basic fighter manoeuvre missions, sweaty but grinning from ear to ear, whilst I fell further behind, but there was nothing I could do. I was in limbo. Jilly and I took some time out to explore the local area, which was truly fantastic. The base's main runway nearly ended up in the sand dunes of a huge 18-mile beach of golden sand 
that stretched from Newcastle to the south up to Nelson Bay, a fabulous water sport area to the north. It was there that we would learn to scuba dive, playing with moray eels, Port Jackson sharks, octopuses and weedy sea dragons, and head out with our friends on their motorboats to go sea fishing. We were on the edge of the Hunter Valley wine-growing area, but we soon found one of our favourite spots, Chichester Dam. Leak Chichester lay in the Barrington Tops National Park, and when the weather was stinky hot, we would fill an esky with cold drinks and steaks and head into the countryside. Before long, the road would start to drop into the valley, through which the river from the dam turned and twisted. The temperature would start to fall and we could wind the windows down, smelling the cool, sweet air. It was then that the magic started. Slowly at first, just one or two, but then more could be heard until we seemed to be driving down into a Carillion performance of exquisite beauty. These were the famous bellbirds, an exclusive inhabitants of southeastern Australia. Part of the minor bird family of honey-eaters, they live in large complex social groups and their delightful chiming would accompany every visit. Equally fascinating to us were the kookaburras, whose manic laughter never failed to amuse us, but soon we learned that they were quite happy to scavenge hot steaks right off the barbie. Our impromptu leave was, happily for me, brought to an abrupt end with an inquiry as to why the devil I wasn't at work. I had apparently been made persona grata and could resume flying. What's more, I had two weeks of work to catch up on. Intercepts were familiar ground for me, except now I was handling the radar as well as flying the aircraft, but the Hornet had the APG-73, a Hughes multi-mode radar system that could be operated without taking your hands off the flight controls. Initially we worked against Learjet targets and flew a mix of day and night sorties. A bit more fun were the combat missions, which were, again, something I was familiar with except for one thing. In the Phantom, the turning circle was big, and keeping sight of your opponent often difficult. In the Hornet, it was, as was frequently quoted to us, like a knife fight in a telephone box an analogy that might defeat a modern generation who are probably imagining the box that their latest iPhone came in. The F-18's turning radius was so small that, rather than imagining a position in space where I wanted to put my aircraft that was a mile or two away, I had to shrink that scenario by several orders of magnitude, as two miles became 2,000 feet. Rarely did the opponent seem to be more than an arm's distance away. It was startling and unexpected and more like mud wrestling than the nightly sport of jousting that I was used to. Sweaty, high-G manoeuvres flown so close we continually came near to bursting the thousand-foot bubble, the minimum distance we were supposed to come to each other. It was fantastic, exciting and fantastic. For two months we flew combat, progressing from intercepts and basic fighter manoeuvres to multiple aircraft combat and dissimilar air combat 
until we had the basics stowed away and moved on to Edaway Gunnery. The Hornet had exactly the same gun as my old Phantom, the M61 Vulcan Cannon, but unlike the F4 it was mounted internally, not carried in a pod, slung under the belly. The six 20mm barrels passed over the top of the radar electronics, with the muzzles firing through a port on top of the nose just short of the radar, and either side were vents to exhaust the gun smoke. Unlike the remote woo noise of the Phantom's gun that I was used to, in the Hornet it was upfront and personal. The muzzle flashes clearly visible a few feet away, the sound a loud brat noise which vibrated the cockpit and the smoke poured out either side of the canopy. Now the Australians didn't do their air-to-air firing like we did. Not the actual gunnery, since shooting at a banner was common enough in most countries, but instead of having a flag all to myself, I had to share it with three others. What's more, the target flew in an orbit, with all of us buzzing around it like seagulls around a rubbish tip. At any one time, one of us was pulling off the target, one was lining up to fire, one was in the dive, and the last was on the perch, waiting to start their run keeping all three other Hornets and the Learjet which towed the banner in sight so that nobody ran into somebody else was more complicated than I was used to, but in reality more like a dogfight than our canned one-on-one -on -one setups. We only got a couple of goes, but I was happy enough with a 9% and a 27% shoot. The air-to-air -air phase was done. We were now going to throw our little pink bodies at the ground, something I hadn't done since my RAF basic training, and I hadn't been particularly good at it then, but for that, I guess, we'll have to wait for Volume 18. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that podcast at airlinepilotguy.com. If you're enjoying Plane Tales in its standalone form, then we'd be very grateful if you go across to your podcatcher of choice or Apple Podcasts and leave us a decent review. That'd be much appreciated. And thank you very much for listening.